Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. This is Season 8, Episode 6, and today I'm going to have on the program writer-screenwriter Alexandra Crapanzano. She is a James Beard Award-winning writer and dessert columnist for the Wall Street Journal. She has a new cookbook out right now called Gâteau, A Surprising Simplicity in French Cakes. Now, I want to tell you, when I took this uh, book out of the box, uh, when I originally got it, I was just immediately wowed by the artwork um, by Cassandre Mortarol, and it's just amazing. Um, it just really pops. I mean, I've really you know, read some great cookbooks that had some amazing uh, food photography in them, and I love those. But this uh, artwork is just spectacular and really will knock your socks off. Um, if you like to bake and you like um, French baking, you're going to really love this book. And I just think if for any home baker that wants to have some nice things for your family to cook that are simple and elegant, um, this cookbook is a must for you. Um, don't be put off by the name, you know, French. Don't make that, don't let that make you think that it is hard or complex or difficult. This is all stuff that's easy for you to do. And Alexandra really went out of her way to make this simple. And the food writing in it is excellent. Um, she really does a lot of step-by-step -step guides for the common cook and makes it easy for you. You know, I joke cooking around and said that I, you know, a little bit imitated by doing Mad Alliance. And I still am a little bit, but honestly, this book makes me want to try it. So um, on that note, I want to go ahead and go to the conversation, which was just wonderful. Um, just enjoy talking to her. Uh, she was such, you know, just a font of information and just lovely to talk to. So onward we go to my conversation with Alexandra Crapanzano talking about her newest book, Gâteau, The Surprising Simplicity of French Cakes, out today. Welcome to the Well Seasoned Librarian podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I am very honored to have on this program, Alexandra Crapanzano, who is a James Beard award-winning writer and dessert columnist for the Wall Street Journal. She is the author of the London Cookbook and Eat Cook LA, and her work has been widely anthologized, mostly notably in the best American food writing. Her new book, Gâteau, The Surprising Simplicity of French Cakes is out as of this episode airing. Alexandra, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Jane. Now, for our listeners who might not be familiar with your work, can you talk, tell them a little bit about your background? Absolutely. I mean, I have been writing about desserts for the last 12 years for the Wall Street Journal. I've written a couple of cookbooks. Um, but in this particular book, Gâteau, I really wanted to return to my childhood in France. I moved to Paris when I was 10 years old and um, fell in love completely with food. Um, but I also really spent a lot of time inside the homes of Parisians. And, and so when I, you know, even as a dessert writer, when I consider what we think about, when we think about French desserts, it really is patisserie. And it occurred to me that nobody has really done a book on what the French actually do bake at home because they, you know, they don't go to a patisserie every day and they also are not born, you know, with a genetic superpower teaching them how to, you know, make <laughs> extraordinarily fancy dessert. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to demystify that, but also, you know, definitely have my cake and eat it too. I mean, in that the, you know, they, they do know what they're doing. Uh, yeah. I do. I hope to convey that. You know, it's funny. I just talked about your book with um, flavor. Um, a person who does flavors for a living. Um, his name is Emmanuel LaRoche. 
and he basically works in the flavor industry. And we we're talking about the differences. I'm sorry to jump to this right away, but I just, I'm so, I was really enamored of the flavor profiles in your cookbook, as opposed to American, which tends to be chocolate or vanilla and vanilla. So, or now we have pumpkin spice, everything. So there's that, but in your cookbook, I was so excited to see the different flavor profiles of citrus, almond, um, violet, um, rose, not violet, sorry, lavender. Oh, there's so uh, many. Yeah. Yes. Orange blossom. Yeah, there are a ton. And I think, um, you know, two, I would say two things about that, that really, really struck me in writing this book, because in a way, when you're, you know, when you cook something all of your life, or at least your many, many years, you kind of stop to actually analyze what it is that you're doing. And, um, but what I, you know, when you start writing it down, of course, you actually have to articulate that in a different way, which is a process I love. And one of the things that really struck me was when I am baking French desserts, French cakes, I really do not reach for vanilla very often. And I, you know, if I'm baking with apples, I rarely reach for cinnamon. It really is that they are, the French love to put forward whatever it is that is their main ingredient. And so they don't want to mask it either with a lot of sugar or with that kind of immediate sensation of, okay, this is vanilla or this is cinnamon apple. It's that kind of um, too, from, too so, so familiar a flavor actually that you actually, you don't really read what that particular cake is about. Um, yeah. But but the other thing that I, I definitely wanted this book to be about was, uh, but, the, but that the French really do work on kind of perfecting a, a kind of a series of back pocket recipes, right? And those recipes, are easy. Some of them are learned in maternelle, which is nursery school, like the yogurt cakes and their version of a pound cake, and some of the nut torts. And I mean, they're, you know, a kind of creme fraiche berry cake in the summer that can also be adapted for every single season. So really, the, the thing I so wanted to do was say, get these, get these core recipes so entrenched that they're almost muscle memory, right? And that can happen super fast. And then you can just experiment. You can riff, you can add whatever flavors you want, whatever um, nuts, chocolate chips, um, you can go savory, you can go sweet, you can add liquors, you can add floral waters. There's so much you can do. Yeah, I just, I really um, wanna thank you for the cookbook because I really, I grew up uh, in, in the suburbs and I've eaten most of my life these crappy airy cakes that are made out of cake mix uh, boxes and have ridiculous amounts of frosting on them. Yeah. And I remember th just reaching a point in my life, even yet when I was young, like I'd rather be stabbed in the eye than <laughs> eat another one of these crappy, you know. And when I got to, um, you know, I was older and I got to go to bakeries and stuff abroad, I was like, wow pastry actually can be really good. <laughs> there can be some really good cakes, actually. And, you know, and I think I, this, this is in no way meant to be a health conscious book. But I think one of the things that the French have figured out is that if they do, they want a little something sweet every single night, which they kind of do. And so do I, um, then it really can't be over the top, right? Yeah. It's got be it's got to be truly a little taste of something and it also needs to be not you know overloaded with icing and you know powdered sugar all over the place it needs to be something that gives you that little bit of satisfaction that you want without um without being over the top you have a really wide range of stuff here here though um the book has many different types of baking in it and there are some really great cake recipes and i, I really was in love 
with many of them. I thought they really ranged though. There wasn't like any kind of one size fits all. I felt there were some really nice little homey cakes that were very simple to make. In fact, I think everything in here is mostly, nothing in here is, is, is really like overly complicated. Everything is simple, which you say in the title. And I really like that because it really, everything seems accessible. I mean, I know it's, it's French and it says, you know, French cakes, but it doesn't mean that it's foreign or unusual. Everything in here is something we could all do at home easily, I think. And I really wanted to thank you for that because I, I looked at everything in this book and I was like, I could do all these things. I could, I could make these things. Although I'm still a little bit uh, intimidated by the, um, by the uh, Madeline's a little bit. <laughs> So listen, you could actually, no, I mean, this, this book takes zero experience. I mean, I, people don't believe me at first when they, they hear French cake and they know that I write about desserts. So the assumption is that it's easy. You know, I think it's easy because I, that's what I do. But in point of fact, these are, these are really family recipes. They're recipes that, you know, I have seen kids make, I have seen people make while multitasking and doing, you know, three other things when they come home. Um, I mean, particularly in the early chapters, I would say, and Madeleine are super, super easy. So I, um, the thing I love about Madeleine is that there's a great wow factor when you present warm Madeleine to people, right? I mean, it is, it is a transcendent, I, I, I hate to, you know, riff on the whole Proustian moment thing, but it truly is a transcendent thing to have a, a Madeleine that is just hot out of the oven because it is it is so tender and beautiful. And I think um, what what I learned in in making them and having them at people's houses is that you just you make the batter in advance because it has to sit in the fridge anyway. And if you actually batter takes ten minutes. If you put the batter into the madeleine tins and then stick those gins into the fridge then you can have a dinner party and you know at some point you just preheat the oven and 10 minutes before you want to serve dessert you put these things in the oven and they come out and they're ready to go and i mean people literally kind of close their eyes and get quiet <laughs> so very um and again it's that great kind of savoir faire that you don't you know you don't need to go to elaborate lengths you just need you need a really good recipe that you are confident in and allows you not to have to fuss or stress or try something you've never made before. Like I, I really have never seen somebody at home in France get people over to have people over to dinner and try a recipe from a new book that they've never made before that they've spent all day on. Yeah. I mean, I, they think that's insane. And, um, you know, sure, it's fun to do once in a while at home with your family, but but the whole point of kind of um, just the, the having that ease to have people over and enjoy yourself as well is really that you're you're not you're not trying to be a professional. You're trying to be a phenomenal home cook. And it's really it's it's really different. I wanted to make one of the recipes before I got a chance to talk to you. So I made the uh, lemon thyme yogurt cake because I had all those oh, was it good? items. Yeah, I really love it. I thought this is something I could really have. And my family liked it too. So that was important for me because I think I, I'm like, I could make this again and they would love it again. So I could see that becoming a part of my repertoire. What are some of the go-to cakes that you like to make um, time and again from your cookbook? Oh, you know, I, so the first chapter, which is a lot of yogurt cakes, I mean, and it includes an almond yogurt cake and um, this being 2022, a uh, oat milk um, yogurt cake. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. 
which is actually just great. And you realize that yogurt, you know, oat yogurt actually has a kind of, of rich depth to it that, that really works. Um, I love those cakes because you can, you can serve them completely plain. They take, you know, they're taught in nursery school. They're very easy, but you can also dress them up. So you can do a little Grand Marnier soaking syrup. You can do a little bit of a glaze. You can, you know, you can add some lavender. You can add all sorts of things to them to, um, depending on what else you're serving or and and who you're serving to. Um, so for example, I've, you know, my son is now 16. Um, so he's definitely not 21, but a tiny bit of Grand Marnier and a glaze isn't going to hurt him. But right. Um, but you know, when he was when he was younger, I would I would sometimes just cut a yogurt cake in half, and I would you know I would add a a, a kind of boozy glaze for grownups and you know and give him the other one, right? I mean, it's so yeah. it's great. These things are very very adaptable. I also really like what's called the um, translates as the four fourths cake, and it's really their version of a of a pound cake. Yeah, and it's a brilliant brilliant recipe. It's totally foolproof because. What the French often do is they will coat the flour in melted butter. So instead of that first step where you cream butter and sugar together, um, and then you're adding eggs and you're adding all sorts of things before you're actually, uh, let me let me rephrase that for a second. That's fine. We can do that. Because it's a little bit complicated. Uh, one of the recipes I really love is what translates as the four-fourths cake, and that is their version of a pound cake. And what they historically did, instead of doing kind of one pound of each ingredient the way we do, is the, the unknown was always the eggs. You never knew how many eggs you were going to have. Right. So, so they would weigh the eggs in their shell, and then they would match that with the other three ingredients. And ah. So it's a slightly different approach. But then the other thing that they would do is... And this is really eliminates the possibility even of forming gluten because what they will do is they will um, coat the flour in melted butter before adding it to the eggs. Now, egg whites are 80 to 85% water. And when you mix water and flour, you get gluten and then you run the risk of a tough cake instead right. of having an under crumb cake. And by, by first coating the flour in the fat of the melted butter, you completely avoid that problem. And so, you know, you can have a kid make this and they can stir and stir and stir and it won't get tough. So it's it's a great recipe and, and it's moist. Um, there's also a couple of creme fraiche cakes in this. Again, super, super moist. Some of the cakes, um, like the nut cakes, I love. I make those quite a bit because, you know, we all have so many gluten-free um, or gluten intolerant, gluten sensitive friends right now yeah. that have to have those recipes. And I don't even call them gluten-free because the French really don't refer to them as gluten-free. They just refer to them as, as nut torts. Um, and it's, it's kind of understood that, that they don't have flour because they don't need flour, not because of any other reason. Those are great. And then I, I have to say, I, I mean, obviously I make a lot of these so often. I make the, the Gatto Suzy, which is a great, great chocolate cake. I mean, it's just, it's like the little black dress of cakes. And I make a lot of savory cakes. Um, I really liked that you had that because I was surprised by that. And I thought, wow, some of these would be really great to serve to guests, like when they have friends over and stuff. They're really, uh, 
Brilliant. Do you want to talk about some of these recipes? I do, because I think they're relatively unknown. I know Derek Greenspan, who I adore, has written about them a little bit, and, and my friend Melissa Clark, too. But, but basically, they are, they're, they're, when I say cake in this case, I'm really talking about a quick bread. So in this case, this is a, a kind of a savory quick bread that is everything that you want in a sandwich in one loaf. So, so you, you take, if you want to do a crook monsieur cake, right, which is essentially a great ham and melted cheese sandwich, uh, you, you add the ham to the butter, you add the gruyere to the butter, maybe you add some chives or some leeks or something to give it a little bite. If you um, want a, the equivalent of kind of a caprese panini, again, Italian, but you know, the French are, are so aligned with the Italian yeah. Mediterranean. You're really taking tomatoes, mozzarella, and basil and putting that in a batter and some olive oil. And what you get are these incredibly moist cakes that are very, very practical because you can cut them into little pieces and you can serve them with an aperitif if you have friends coming over. And then you can put a couple slices in your lunchbox the next day. Or you can, you know, have them if you're going out, going to the theater, you're going to a movie, you think you're going to come back at 11 at night, you're going to be hungry, you can prep that and make that in advance, serve it with a salad, it'll stay moist. Even by the third or fourth day, honestly, you can pop a piece in the toaster. And, um, you know, and the French, the French love basic sandwiches, right? They do that yeah. baguette where you cut a baguette in half and you add butter and you add some ham or some cheese or some pate. But, um, but in America, when we so often when we have sandwiches, they're not at the optimal time, right? You're sometimes yeah. they are, they've been in the fridge too long, or they've been sitting at room temperature too long. They're either kind of too soggy or too cold, or they've lost their texture. And, uh, and so this is to me, this is like the perfect lunchbox sandwich. Then you can stick vegetables and protein in there and all the things that you need to do too. That the savory uh, breads would be so cakes would be so wonderful for a picnic too. So I want to recommend that to anybody who's listening because I really think they they should check that part of the cookbook out as well because it's just, it's phenomenal and I really can't wait to try them myself for that very purpose. I really like the different flavoring uh, pairings that you we've mentioned ahead already um, in the cookbook because I saw some that I hadn't thought of before and I really loved you know, the, the usage of coffee flavoring of citrus. And then also I love the chocolate and pear flavorings that I saw a few times in the book. Do you have any flavor, a uh, favorite flavor pairings from the book? You, you know, it's so funny. You mentioned chocolate and pear because that is actually, I would say one of my all time favorite combinations. Part of it is that my mother always would add a little bit of, of Cora William to, to Julia Child's chocolate mousse, which was one of my all time favorite desserts growing up and, and still is. Um, and, and really because pear is that magical fruit that is, it's got a lot of delicate fragrance to it. And it will never overpower what it's with, which I like. So you're, so you're almost bringing out a kind of faint floral perfume to a chocolate, which is lovely. And it still reads as super chocolatey, but you're getting, you're getting something that has a little bit of delicacy in the background that I think is just delicious. And, you know, and one of the things about you know, chocolate mousse, for example, is chocolate mousse is that kind of funny oxymoron where, where it's supposed to, you know, it's supposed to be unbelievably rich and dense, but it's also supposed to be light and ethereal at the same yeah. time. Right? You, you want to taste it and you want to taste that, like, uh, you know, incredibly rich uh, flavor, but, um, but, but not bite. And, um, 
And to me, pear is one of the perfect matches for that because again, it is, um, it's got, it's got a, a beautiful, um, beautiful fragrance, beautiful that you taste. I mean, you really do taste the pear fragrance. Um, but again, it is, it feels a little bit ethereal. It feels a little bit, um, a little, a little delicate in a nice way that, that helps create certain kind of the sensation of something being a little bit delicate in a mousse or a chocolate cake. So that is one of my favorite combinations. I also, you know, I love lavender and lemon. And yes. in the summer, I will, I will really, I will take lemon and rind. I will take the zest of lemon and I will take tons and tons of lavender, fresh lavender, and I'll dry it out for maybe a day in the sun. And then I will, I'll put it in the food processor with some raw sugar until I get a nice blend. And, and then I can use that really all winter long so that I, I have that kind of that lavender lemon already. And again, if I have a, like a, a little jar of that in the pantry, then I can, I can make a yogurt cake. I can make a four course cake. I can make any of these cakes and suddenly get that, that really beautiful um, fragrance. Um, I also love, I love rose water and orange blossom water. And uh, one thing that's true in, you know, in France is that, is that there's less, um, I get, you don't, in America, I feel like you see rose water really being served in, you know, Mother's Day parties or yeah. um, baby showers or things like that. It is considered usually a very feminine flavor profile in France it's it's really not at all so so it is um uh there's there's no you know it would be served at any sort of dinner party or or just for fun and i you know you go to any patisserie and you'll see lots of rose macarons we can't talk about the cookbook without talking about the beautiful artwork by cassandra mortorial can you talk about um her work in the book and how you um, got connected with her to do the artwork? Absolutely. You know, I was um, really looking for an illustrator and wanted, knew I wanted somebody in France who was familiar with these cakes and, um, and that we would kind of have a, a, an easy code language for them. And a friend recommended her and we just, we hit it off immediately. I, I looked on her website and I saw some really beautiful work and I thought, this is exactly what I want. The reason I I, illust I wanted it illustrated um, is that I want this book to be timeless because the recipes really are timeless. This is, you know, my last two books were photographed and, and they really do represent a moment in time and the recipes should live on, but the, but, but their, their recipes, their, their books about cities. I wrote the London cookbook and eat cook LA. And so they very much are meant to reflect the vibrancy of those cities at a particular moment book that has recipes that date back to the Middle Ages, um, that has recipes that have been around, even if not back to the Middle Ages, for 100, 200 years. They're tried, they're true. Obviously, I should say, you know, I use a convection oven and a stand mixer and there were, you know, baking powder and all sorts of things that weren't around then. But they're, but they're basically really, really tried and true. And so I want this to be a book that that lasts on people's shelves for a very, very long time. And I, I felt that uh, food photography can sometimes get, um, can sometimes feel a little tired very, very quickly. I did not want that. I also wanted people to just feel a, 
a little bit breezy, you know, in a, in a good way to just realize this is meant to be fun and lighthearted. And to me, watercolors do that. Um, they have a, a kind of a joyous quality that I'm, I wanted. Uh, she did, she definitely went a, a little fancier than the, than the actual recipes in the book at times, just because of course, if you're, if you're yeah. an artist, you gotta do that, why not, particularly in the cover. Um, but the reality is, is like how many, how many photographs or illustrations of a loaf cake can you have? I mean, they're, you know, they all look a little bit different, but they're, they're not going to be radically different. So I also didn't feel I needed to have this book photographed. Um, I wanted instead to, uh, to, to just give a sense of ease and joy to it. I mean, no amount of food photography, I mean, as good as it can be, it would not have been as beautiful as the artwork in this book. And when I took it out of the box, I remember going, wow, <laughs> it just pops. It like, it immediately arrests your attention. I mean, I'm, I'm sure when you first saw the, the galleys and everything, you must've been like, holy crap, this is amazing. Yes, I mean, I, I was, we had worked by that point, we had really, really gone back and forth a lot and um and she was just amazing to work with because we could uh you know we could say something like my editor and I when I say we you know we want a kind of a fanciful scene in Paris <laughs> you yeah know, that with somebody having cake but the, but that's basically you know those are the confines and you know and she would come up with this fantastic approach and uh and I, I love that so it does I am I hope I work with her again I think she's absolutely fantastic yeah you mean you when you're you're really you hit it on the head when you said this book is timeless because of this because this this is one of these things that 20 30 years from now the, the book's still going to be beautiful it's still going to really resonate with people so you really did a great job there thank you This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. I want to go back to your beginning as a writer. Um, now, you had uh, done some... Uh, screenwriting in Los Angeles and Hollywood um, back before you started doing food writing. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so I actually, it's a, it's a funny story. I went to graduate school uh, in film directing at NYU and, um, and my kind of thesis screenplay uh, was, took place in 1848. It was too expensive to make as a, as a person just leaving school, but it, it did get me an agent at CAA and I, I worked for, um, a couple of, I guess, actually quite a, quite a few years writing for what was then a really interesting kind of independent, um, pseudo-independent film world, the kind of, um, the days of Miramax and Focus Features and Fine Line and um, Fox Searchlight. And, uh, but I also worked a lot in the UK. And so I was back and forth to, to London quite often. And in fact, really love that that film industry. It's a little bit smaller. It's it's a very gentle uh, one compared to Hollywood. And then when my son was born in 2006, I knew I wanted to take off a little bit of time. And in 2007, there was a Writers Guild strike, which meant that if you wrote for Hollywood, you had to stop literally writing for Hollywood. Yeah, um, I remember that. And, um, and I 
had an article I wanted to write about food and I sent, I, I literally emailed Amanda Hesser. So Amanda Hesser at that point was the food editor of the New York Times Magazine um, Food Pages. And I said, I have this story I wanna write. And she said, go for it um, and uh, give it a try. And she liked it. And that really began almost two years of, of doing that column. And, you know, it, it worked with having a young child for me. It was something I loved. And I also believe that writing is a muscle. And I think if you, you know, if you don't write, uh, it's much harder to write. And so I, I wanted to keep that alive. I knew I was gonna write, but I wasn't gonna go back and forth to Los Angeles or New York. And, um, and it's also just been a passion. I mean, I've always, you know, my money job in film school was producing for Martha Stewart. And, uh, and so I've, yeah. I've, and I've always, so all the things that I've kind of done have had food somehow in them. Yeah. Um, I'm now writing a movie about uh, wine in Bordeaux. That's a, a love story. Um, and deals with climate. Oh, wait a minute. Is that based on a book that? Uh... Nope. Okay. Then never mind. I, I, I thought of something else. So sorry. Nope, but there's some really good, there's some really good books on that. But, uh, and, and anyway, so, so kind of what my, my side thing was really started to become my main thing over time. And, you know, at a certain point in writing my Wall Street well, I should backtrack and say that, you know, after the New York Times, I was, I left because Ruth Reichel hired me over to Gourmet um, before it shuttered and I won a James Beard Award then. And then when Gourmet shuttered, uh, which was terribly sad, uh, the Wall Street Journal was just about to start off duty their first lifestyle section. And, and they called me up and said, would you come write a food column? And it was really while I was writing that book that I, this, that column that I realized I was writing more and more about what was happening in the UK um, and how it was kind of undergoing a, a real culinary transformation as a city, a city that had always had terrible food was suddenly having extraordinary food and I wanted to document that. And, and then I realized that that was also happening in, in Los Angeles. Again, a, a city that was not known for food was suddenly, um, kind of having this extraordinary food renaissance. And so I wrote a book about that. And, um, you know, and gradually it started to, you know, it kind of the food writing just grew and grew and grew. And, um, and then this book uh, is probably my most personal and most important because it, you know, I started it in the beginning of the pandemic. I thought it was gonna be 70 pages. I thought it was gonna be you know, a little gift book and with, you know, maybe 50 cake recipes. And I would do, you know, perfect one every day of the pandemic. And then the pandemic grew and the book grew and, and you know, and suddenly, you know, I would had you know, 250 cakes. Um, and I started to realize at that point, wait a second, this this actually should be a kind of definitive book. And I don't like to use that word because, um, it feels incredibly arrogant, but but the way that I mean it is that I wanted to I wanted to get all the categories in. I wanted to make sure that we had um, bouche de Noël that somebody at home could make. You know, I wanted to make sure that that all of the major cakes were covered that people make at home. And uh, it, but it was really my way of writing my way home to Paris. I think when I couldn't get there, you know, so the borders were closed, but I would. It would kind of uh, live in that headspace and 
we would eat in that headspace. You had mentioned Gourmet Magazine. You were one of the last writers there when it closed. That must have been devastating. I've read a lot of the Ruth Reichel wrote about it. Um, what was that like for you then? It was such a shock. I mean, I, I was in the last issue and, you know, I, Ruth was an extraordinary mentor and editor, still is. Um, and, you know, she, she really believed that, that food writing needed a place and it needed length. And, um, and that it didn't have to be super trendy. I mean, in the way that William Sean, who was my mother's first editor at the New Yorker magazine, you know, legendary editor in chief there for 50 some years, he did have a sense of, you know, go figure out the story, you know, write it, figure it out, take some time with it. And, uh, and that's a, just an incredible gift to have. There are not a lot of places where one can write essays about food anymore. Um, I mean, there are almost no places. And so I really miss it. And I, and I know that everybody who really believed that food writing could be literary um, and evocative and, and nuanced and poetic and all of these things really, really miss it. I thought it was, it was a massive mistake on the board of Condé Nast. And, and I, think, um, I think that's been recognized. It was a, a cost-cutting thing. Um, but you know, it could come back. Who knows? Some version. Hopefully, of it. now people can write more online, which is wonderful. It's it's just that you absolutely cannot make a living doing it. And yeah. um, and I think the I think that when you're writing online, it is uh, it's both freeing, uh, but it is you you're not necessarily putting in quite the same time commitment and and sense of awareness of, of permanence that you are when you're writing to publish on in paper and I th the way I always think of it is that when I you know when I was in film school even though everybody was starting to shoot video or was already shooting video essentially um, not iPhones yet but video you know we were we were originally taught on 16 millimeter and the idea was you know if you're going to take this seriously as an art um, then you need to know that every shot matters and it's not just something you kind of do over a thousand times. You need to, you need to think about it and then do it and do it right. Um, and I think that that training is really important as a writer as well, that you, you need to, you need to at least, even if you are going to write on in a digital medium, you need to somehow think, okay, every sentence matters. Your first book, Eat Cook LA, Recipes from the City of Los Angeles, was kind of a groundbreaking book that you took 100 recipes from famous restaurants in LA and you retooled them for the home cook. Where did you think of this idea and how did you begin to work with these um, chefs on this project? So Eat Cook LA was actually my second book. Um, I'm sorry, apologies. Don't worry. Um, but, uh, but both Eat Cook LA and the London Cookbook, which was my first book, really were came sprung from a desire to really celebrate these cities that were suddenly turning into extraordinary food cities. And even more particularly when I kind of um, just as a journalist dug a little bit deeper into what was causing that change, what I realized was that there were a few chefs who happened to be extraordinary teachers, very generous teachers 
who were at the heart really of these incredible culinary transformations in both cities. You know, so, you know, in London, that's Fergus Henderson um, and uh, uh, Rose Gray and Ruthie Rogers of the River Cafe you know, who I think of as one because it was their their restaurant, but but basically those two restaurant kitchens and those extraordinary three people managed to train an entire city worth of unbelievable chefs, you know, who then trained another group and and really created a sense of generosity and solidarity um, in which you kind of, you wanted everybody to make great food. It was not a competitive, it doesn't, you know, it's the opposite of those Marco Pierre White, cocaine fueled, testosterone fueled, crazy <laughs> fight era um, that had existed previously. And, you know, I mean, Jamie Oliver, right? Was, came out of the River Cafe. And then yeah. you know, he obviously launched a whole other group of, of chefs. And now you're actually into a you know fourth generation of that. And um, and in LA, it was really uh, Nancy Silverton and Suzanne Gohn, um, who I felt, again, were very, very instrumental in not only training people, but creating this, the sense in the city among people in food that there was room for everybody you know instead of being competitive it was to learn from each other and uh and i think it transformed the city entirely so so those you know that was it and then you know i find listen people always say well do chefs really want to part with their recipes how do you get them to do that are they really giving you the the correct one and you know the answer is I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, it's really easy because it, chefs are, you know, the, the good ones at least are cooking from seasonal ingredients, whatever happens to be available and fantastic at that particular moment. And I think if they're really good, they're very, very flexible. I'm not talking about places like the French Laundry where, you know, there are signature dishes that people travel yeah. you know, across the world for. But, but in these books, which are also very much about food for home cooks, um, you know, there's, there's an improvisational quality to, to cooking yeah. and the good chefs know that they, they're worth more than one recipe. They've got a lot of recipes. Uh, so that was not hard. I think what was challenging in both of those, and I, I had a great intern, thank God, but, um, but was that, you know, when the life of a chef is so super, super busy that they would absolutely say yes I would absolutely love to contribute this is fantastic that you're doing this thank you for celebrating our city let me know what you want and they would really really mean it but by the time they got to writing down their recipe the chances are it was two in the morning and they've been working all night and they were exhausted so I would have to go back and kind of um figure out okay you know what were they too tired to to not put down or leave out and they were all great about it I mean you know, as I said, there's there's only really been two experiences where I've, you know, one one chef who gave me a bad recipe and and even admitted it, which was very strange. And of course, I I caught that. Um, and then another very famous chef in in LA who just makes so much money on particular dishes that he he wasn't gonna wasn't gonna do anything that that gave away his his secrets. But generally, it's 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 um. People, you know, people love to be, they love it when you celebrate them. Yeah. And I, I, I just, I don't know. I just really loved that you're able to take some of that work that we usually think of as um, unattainable and make it something that we could cook at home and kind of inspire us. So I thought that was really beautiful. 
I really love the London cookbook. And I especially like um, the part about with Fergus Henderson in it, who's like a god to me. Um, what was it like meeting him and uh, eating at St. John? Oh, it was absolute heaven. I have to say, I, I just, just adored him from the moment I met him. Uh, I arrived to meet him at 11 a.m. And, um, and there he was already with a glass of champagne, <laughs> 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 all dressed up, standing by the bar. And, um, and I was thinking, you know, this is such an important interview. I've got my, you know, I'm ready to record. I've got my steno pad and my, you know, I'm like ready to be super serious. And, uh, and he was so delightful. And we really did um, spend what must have been, I don't know, six hours that first lunch. I mean, wow. I, we, we, had, we had every sort of food and every sort of alcohol and just an incredible, incredible time. And I, you know, I feel immense tenderness towards him. He's, he's obviously spent much of his life in, in serious medical um, infirmity and yeah. but has, he has a, just an incredible joy and a sense of um, just a, a, a love of living well that maybe in part stems from that realization that, you know, life isn't always forever. So you, you do want to you, you really want to enjoy it while you have it. The other thing that really struck me about Fergus is he had started as an architect and wow. and he wanted to pare down um, what was perceived of as a good restaurant in, in London. So that, you know, really un until 35 years ago, I mean, not that long ago, you know, if you wanted to go out to a fancy dinner in London, you would go to the Savoy, you would go to a hotel, you would go somewhere and have very stuffy French food that might be delicious, but it was very, very formal. Or you would do the opposite. You would go to, you know, a pub, a chop house, a curry house and, um, and have really good food, but, um, but, but it would be, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be in any way formal or, um, or chic or a place that you'd necessarily want to linger at, right? And, you know, and I think, I think Fergus in his way of kind of just creating a, a space that was white walls and, you know, he was the first to do that and wood tables and, but to have the service be impeccable and the food be impeccable uh, was brilliant because it, it became a place you wanted to go to and you recognize that you could actually have fun and eat really well too, which sounds like it should be an obvious thing, but, but wasn't really at that point in the UK. And I think, you know, I think oddly this, a lot of this had to do in the 20th century with the rise of a middle class. And yeah. suddenly people who, you know, had some disposable income and wanted to have a great meal on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night, and uh, and not have to get dressed up and not have to sit down for four hours for a tasting menu, but also <laughs> a little bit more elevated. And and uh, and he just he just nailed what it is to have a great time and have great food. We have a really what I feel is really stupid bias against British food. I, every time I have somebody say, "Oh, British food," blah blah blah. And they roll their eyes. It makes me mad because I I remember when I was in England, I've never eaten better than when I've been in England. I, I ate very well there. And do you think that he kind of flings back because his food is very British, and 
he really takes Britishood and elevates it. Do you think he's kind of flinging back to that saying, well, oh yeah, we'll take a load of this, you know, this, this is, you know, pretty good. So. Yes. I think what he's doing is he is, he is making British food with a French influence in technique. And, um, and so, and he is using really great ingredients, but there's serious, there's serious skill behind what he does. Um, so I, th I think there are a couple things in that. I think he, um, first of all, he does believe in, in kind of robust fare, right? So it, it does feel much more like the food you might have in the British countryside rather than urban food. Yeah. And I think that that uh, is incredibly comforting and, uh, and definitely harkens back to this idea of a kind of a more pastoral time when people were naturally uh, in small villages and in the country living, you know, farm to table, garden to table. And, and in fact, that that food was probably pretty good at times. And, you know, and then so many things happened, including, you know, really the ravages of World War II, which of course, in certainly in London lasted, you know, well into the 60s. Um, and 70s before the city really, really started to come back fully, I would say. I mean, I was I was not born, but but that is that's what my research research tells me. Um, so I think he's I think he is definitely playing an a paying an ode or an homage to British food and also to French technique and also to this idea that um, that if you you know if you use great local ingredients you're going to have pretty sublime food if you if you treat it the right way and you don't you know you don't overcook it you don't I mean so much about British food before this kind of culinary transformation had to do with the fact that things were just overcooked so much I mean meat was overcooked and vegetables were overcooked and everything was kind of soggy and mushy and a kind of you know terrible mass and um and so I love that he was saying, wait a second, if you if you take these basic concepts and and you rethink how you make it and how you treat it and what food means, that food is not just calories, it's not just meant to feed, it's also meant to to nourish at a different level. I think he really did do that. When you're in um you, know, you spent a lot of your life in in England and London. Do you are there any um places that are must if you're there for a week, are there any places you have to hit while you're there? Oh, I have I have so many. I mean, I have a I have a long list, and I would say that it also does change, um, and and I have not tried everything since before the pandemic. So I'm I'm yeah. when people ask me about restaurant suggestions now, I'm very careful to say these are places that historically have been fantastic. Um, you know, I have been to the River Cafe more recently. It is still one of my all time it's my all time favorite restaurants in the world. Uh, I just I love it. I love the I love the look of it. I love the energy of it. Um, it's a little bit off the beaten path in in London. Um, I also love obviously Yotamotolenge's places. I love Nopi. I love going to Otolenge and just getting takeout. Um, but then there are then there's so many. Um, there's some great uh, Indian restaurants like Gymkhana, which I think is extraordinary as well. Uh, oh, I, I it's um, there's also incredibly good uh, Spanish tapas, 
which is interesting. You wouldn't necessarily think of that, but uh, but places like uh, Brindisa and Pizarro are absolutely fantastic. Um, I love, love, love a place um, called Boca de Lupa, which is an Italian restaurant on Archer Street in Soho. Um, brilliant chef, Jacob Kennedy, fantastic food. You can go in there, sit at the counter and have a absolute sublime meal. And he's got a, uh, a gelateria across the street too. That's fantastic called Jalupa. So those are, those are, you know, oh, I, there, you know, there's so many. Um, and I love, there's a great chocolate shop called Rococo, uh, Marylebone, and is across the street from La Fromagerie, which I think is one of the great cheese shops and, and also is a great place for lunch. That sounds like so, a great day in London. <laughs> it's a great day in London, exactly. You have you can you can have one thing and then just literally cross you know cross the twenty foot street and finish with a chocolate. Um, so so all good and then maybe ice cream later. And I'm a, I am I love coffee, but I am I am really a tea person also. So I um, that part of the UK really appeals to me. Now, I was going to ask, uh, who are some of your favorite food writers that inspired you through your life? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I love Nigel Slater. Mm. I, have, you know, I think I read Nigel Slater the way I read poetry, meaning that I will, you know, I will keep a book of his by my bed and just it makes read. sense. Like I have, I have memories of just reading a page of his on blackberries. <laughs> It's like, oh my gosh. Um, so I really am a huge fan of Alec Lebrano um who wrote hungry for paris um which is more of a guidebook but then uh last year he wrote a, a wonderful memoir called a place at the table oh um, yeah yeah and he's just a beautiful writer really beautiful writer i'm actually going to do a talk with him at the um alliance francaise uh in i think in december um lives in paris actually uh was at gourmet for many years and and just has a, a gorgeous literary sensibility um you know, I love Francis Lamb. I think he's a fantastic writer, just a, a magician with words and also uh, just has a kind of voracious uh, desire for culinary knowledge, uh, which I love. So, I mean, there, there are a lot, but, but those, are, those are three who I kind of turn to again and again. Um, and then going back, I mean, A.J. Liebling, um, obviously huge influence, uh, or I, I shouldn't say influence because that, Sounds very arrogant, but I somebody I read a lot. Um, love MFK Fisher. I love Elizabeth David. I grew up with, you know, my mother had all of Elizabeth David's books. And I think there was something very liberating about this idea that you, you know, you can have a recipe that's just a paragraph. And, you know, especially the Mediterranean ones, if the if the ingredients are good, then then you're gonna end up with something delicious. Uh, I think she was very contemporary, very modern, in fact, in her own way. Yeah, I think she kind of, she was writing for food nerds back, you know, ahead of time, back way ahead of the curves before, you know, we all started coming out of the woodwork now. Listen, I, I mean, she kind of really brought some, some things like, you know, olive oil and garlic to London, which isn't to say that it, people weren't aware of it. Of course they were, and of course they used them, but she kind of, she really, really brought that Mediterranean influence. In. And and that was like just the arrival of sunshine in the UK for a lot of people, you know. So now that the book's coming out, Gateau, um, do you, what's next for you after this? Uh, good question. I have two books I do want to write, um, and I've got this 
movie to finish, which is very fun. Uh, but very it's good. Still a Wall Street Journal column. But I also, you know, in, in the last couple of years, I've started to start to consult really in the climate change and agriculture landscape. And, you know, like every parent, I think it's impossible not to say I've, I've got to work on making the planet okay for the next generation. Um, so that that has really been an interesting thing for me because I do, um, you know, I, I'm fascinated by learning new things. And I also feel like I have a, a different kind of perspective on how people eat in the world and um, kind of what the shifting agricultural map looks like. Um, and then who I think is really tackling food in the face of climate change in an interesting way. And, uh, and so I've been, I've been focused on that and, and kind of sitting on some boards and doing some consulting and, uh, and think I will probably do more of that. You know, particularly interested personally in kind of wine and climate change, tea and climate change, coffee and climate change. I spent some time this summer in Mozambique um, uh, in Gorongosa National Park, where there's this incredible sustainability drive and they're making just beautiful shade grown coffee, which has allowed them to reforest an entire mountain um, with indigenous trees. So, so things like that are just fascinating to me right now. So I'm, I'm definitely, I'm not going to stop writing. I'm going to keep writing cookbooks. I'm going to keep writing my column, but I'm, I also, I also feel it's time to, to help the world a little bit. Well, I mean, you're, you're, this is such an amazing time period for that because so many people I've been talking to are really talking about that right now. And I think a lot of people are very concerned, you know, and we still have, you know, so many cities that are largely food deserts. And, you know, I, I live in California that's largely becoming a desert. I was talking to a, um, a representative from the Wheat Council of California who's saying we're having to change the ways we, we grow wheat in California, which is you know, normal, but also a little terrifying. So this is a really heady time period. It absolutely is. And I think, I think that when you, um, you know, when you have very specific specialties, what you miss is you miss people saying, okay, well, yes, we can do things this way, or we can involve AI to help in this way. But, but unless people actually want to eat that way, or can figure out how to eat that way, or, um, can can envision it, then it's just not going to work, right? So, so so I feel like some of these um, these incredible tech organizations and and funds and all of this stuff really do need somebody who says, yes, this is great, but you know, if we're actually going to make this work, we actually have to a see if people will eat this way and b um, teach them how. Right. I look forward to that. Then that's going to be wonderful. Thank you. Alexandra, I really want to thank you for being on the show. I really had a great time talking to you. And I'm going to put links to your book. Um, people can uh, order it from the links online and also um, your, your previous books as well and your column on the Wall Street Journal. Alexandra, thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, it was my total pleasure. I love talking to you. That was my interview with the fun Alexandra Crapanzano who talked about her book, Gateau, The Surprising Simplicity of French Cakes. I really had a great time talking to Alexandra, and um, I just really hope to have her on the program again. She was a really fun guest. Next week, we're going to be having Molly Gilbert on the program. I enjoy talking to her as well, and I can't wait to air that for you also. She has a new book out also, Sheet Pan Sweets, Simple Streamlined Dessert Recipes, 
And boy, it's a great cookbook. I really recommend this one for you also. Um, just, you know, I've just been uh, besieged with wonderful cookbooks lately. Uh, and I just, gonna, I see foresee a lot of baking uh, over the next several weeks. Uh, so I'm going to be having a lot of fun. And I really encourage you to come and check out that one next week also. We want to encourage our listeners to please um, share our podcast links online on social media. Please uh, tell a friend about our podcast. We always like having new listeners. We want to thank Asian Man Records for allowing us to use their song, Talk About Love, by the group Kitty Cat Fan Club that is on their label. You can check out AsianManRecords.com for that band and others and look at their merchandise as well, maybe buy an album or two. I hope you all have a really great week and keep on cooking. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I've been getting... 